How you doing out there tonight? Good. Sweaty. We're having some lighting problems tonight. The women's ministry blew up the light board. Yeah. Yeah, you got you to gotta pay for it, which is a powerful amount of money. All right. Just kind of getting used to the lighting up here. I might, uh, I might preach a different sermon. I don't know. See what, <laughs> I'm trying to find something. Um, we're in Matthew 25. We uh, preached all the way through Matthew 24, and uh, we're into 25, and we have some parables of readiness to look at. You know, we've talked a lot about the signs of Jesus' coming. We've talked about... Uh, you know, these parables of the kingdom. We looked at a lot of kingdom parables. You know, most of the, most of the parables are kingdom parables. They're revealing uh, things about the kingdom of God that were not known to us um, before, you know, the word of God made them clear. But Matthew 25 is 46 verses long, and it contains three parables, and they all have to do with us being ready for Jesus' coming. And that's why we call them parables of readiness, you say, what, what would define the condition that we should live in as Christians? And that is a condition of readiness. Not so entangled in the world that if Jesus would come and pluck us up today, that we would feel lost because we built a kingdom here. You see, we need to be ready to leave at a moment's notice because we're not, we're not invested so much here as we're invested in heaven. Now, I know to people who are, you know, either new Christians or maybe not Christians yet, that sounds crazy. That's like crazy stuff. What are you, what are you talking about? For the Christian, the next life is the best life. Yes. Amen. We're not living for today. The people who are living for today are not going to be ready for eternity. So uh, this parable that we're looking at here, the parable of the ten virgins, we're going to jump into that in just a minute here and see how far we get. But uh, realize it is a parable of the kingdom that is trying to get us alert enough to live ready so that when he does come, we don't suffer loss and we don't miss the coming, but we're well prepared for it. So, Father, tonight we thank you for Matthew 25. We pray your grace and your mercy as we uh, study through it. Holy Spirit, open up the truth to us and give us wisdom uh, to understand and apply uh, the gems and the precious things that you've tucked in here for those who seek you beyond the superficial. Lord, I pray tonight that each of us would get something from the Father's heart from these parables, and it would affect the way we live on a daily basis. I pray that in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. So let's talk a little bit about chapter 25. I mentioned it's 46 verses. It has three parables in it. They are the parables of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the judgment or of the sheep and the goats, whichever you prefer. If you like sheep and goats, we'll go with that one, but it is about judgment, and it is a parable of readiness. Now, these parables are all warning us to live ready, to be spiritually sound, to be spiritually productive. When Jesus comes back, we want him to find us doing the work of the kingdom, amen? When Jesus comes back, we want to, he, he wants to find us fulfilling the call of God on our lives. 
We don't just get saved to do our own thing. Each of us are handpicked and hand-called by God with unique giftings and unique opportunities. And you and I need to be like Jesus was when he disappeared from Mary and Joseph. He said, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? That little snotty kid told his parents all. <laughs> Smile, it's good. It takes wrinkles away. Go ahead. But you know what? They looked at him like, who is this? this what this guy? The Bible says Mary tucked it all in her heart. But Jesus was always doing the Father's business when the disciples said, Lord, stop, stop, you need to eat. He said, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And that should be our food. That should be what nourishes us, amen? So being productive, being spiritually sound, being ready, and knowing that we're going to stand before God in the judgment, and we're going to have to answer for how we spent the gift of time that he gave us and how we use the gifts that he gave us. Is this sobering to anyone but me? Well, don't get mad at me. I had to wrestle with it all week. You only have to hear it for, you know, 40 minutes. The first parable, the ten virgins, we're going to read it right now, and uh, we're, we're going to try and get through as much as we can. The kingdom of heaven, here it says in chapter 25, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven, notice the kingdom parable, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other versions came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So an interesting parable with a lot of implications, and we need to do a lot of digging here, so let's kind of jump in. This is a warning to us, as the other ones are going to contain a warning that's a common thread, to maintain this state of being ready for Jesus' coming. Now, right out of the box, let me say, what constitutes foolish living is living in a way that you know is not pleasing to God. See, a lot of people come to church and play church, but underneath the hood, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that they are doing things they know they shouldn't be doing. Now, the more the, more the preaching is inspired by the Holy Spirit and the more the pastoral team is bringing the word of God that brings conviction, the less of that that can go on in a church comfortably. You see, I find that if you preach it hot and tight, you weed out the tares because they're not comfortable in that. If you're constantly bringing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you're constantly bringing the truth of God's word, unvarnished, not toned down, not sugar-coated, it's uncomfortable to sit in that. 
Have you, ever, have you ever been in a situation in your life where you knew you were in sin, you knew you were in trouble, you knew you were doing things that the word of God is so clear about? I remember, you know, as a young person in the youth group, I, I, w- I went to youth group here. And I remember sitting with my friends in the back row and getting in trouble in church and, and just knowing what was going on in people's lives, who's smoking this and who's drinking that and who's sleeping with who. Come on, I'm being real in church today. And knowing that, you know, and watching the conviction of the Holy Spirit fall, and it's uncomfortable. And God wants us to get the conviction we need so that we can maintain that state of spiritual readiness. But it's foolish for us to live in a way that we know is not pleasing to God and to maintain that without repenting, without being honest, without getting real is a foolish way to live. We're talking about wise virgins and foolish virgins. The vast majority of this world is not ready for the coming of Jesus. They're not ready to stand before the judgment seat. They're not ready to stand before God and give an account for their lives. The world is lost and needs Jesus, and we get that, amen? Now, it's easy for the Christians to go, oh, yeah, the world is lost and the world needs Jesus, but you know what? Sometimes we get lost too, and sometimes we we need to repent too. Sunday, week after week, we've been talking about repentance, And I hope that that is breaking through the walls in our hearts that we would let the Holy Spirit show us where we need to repent. But, you know, the world's not ready to meet Jesus. And we get that. But when we realize this parable is speaking to the people of God, that's a little sobering, isn't it? Think about that. There are people who are you know, churchgoers, they're religious folks, they consider themselves godly, and the reality is that they are unprepared to meet the bridegroom, religious and lost. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, that's some other churches, Pastor Rick, that's not us. But we gotta be humble enough to examine our hearts. Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you really are in the faith. Come on, anybody read the Bible? I'm not making that up. He said that. Examine yourself. Oh, well, I got saved. I came to the altar. I cried a few tears. I said the prayer. I'm good. Examine yourself. Spiritual readiness. Transparency before God. The opening statement lets us know that, you know, this is a a kingdom parable, and it is a call to the people in the kingdom. Verse 25 says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins. So it's, it's a kingdom thing. Now, remember, a parable is a simple story using a relevant topic to reveal a deeper spiritual principle or meaning. Here, these parables, these simple stories, and there are cultural relevance to this story that I'm going to give you in a little bit, but this is trying to reveal a deeper spiritual principle here. So we're talking about what the kingdom of God is like. Did you see that? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those are interchangeable. Uh, They mean the same thing, but he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like. So these are telling us what it's like, what the principles are, what the rules are in the kingdom. That's good for us to know. Why? Because, you know, we live in this world, but we're not of this world. We live in the kingdom of this world, but we are of a different citizenship. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so these parables should give us wisdom and understanding of how we should live because it's revealing the nature of the kingdom that we actually live in. So we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. In this case, it's like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now remember, parables are relatable stories. The people listening to this when, when it was spoken in Jesus' day understood the exact picture that Jesus was painting here, and it was the picture of the Jewish wedding tradition of the day. When bridesmaids would get together before a wedding, they would all wait together to greet the bridegroom. This was a tradition. It was culture. It was custom. So they, they would all get together, and they would get in one spot, and the bridegroom would very often come very late at night. I don't know why, but he did, to make it a surprise, to make it so that they had to stay ready, to make it so that he had to be watched for. They didn't know when he'd come. So picture, you got all these, bridegroom, these, you know, these bridesmaids together. They're all holed up. They're waiting for the bridegroom. They would watch for his coming, and they would have these lit lanterns. Why? Because he was coming in the darkness. And the lanterns were to be lit to welcome him out of the darkness to receive his bride. Now, that was the culture and the custom of the day, but what a picture it paints of us, the church, waiting to receive Jesus, the groom, coming for us, amen? And our lanterns are the light of the Holy Spirit that's in us, that shines as a beacon in the darkness to welcome him as he comes through the darkness to catch the church away and take us with our lights. Man, I'm more excited. You guys are just looking at me. And that's an awesome picture right there. It doesn't move you. Let's get the Holy Ghost jumper cables out. And we'll clear. But those lights, and Jesus is coming, and everyone who's got a light shine, and he's taken with him. And here's this, this is a tradition. This is culture. This is what the Jews do. And, and as he tells this parable, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It's news to us because we don't do this stuff. We do different things, and, you know, they understood. So this is a picture of the church and Jesus coming to get the church, and the message to us is have your lamps lit and keep them lit. Amen? How do you get your lamp lit? You get born again. How do you get your lamp lit? You get filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you keep your lamp lit? You, you walk in the Spirit. You do the things of the Spirit. Amen? Come on. How do you keep your lamp lit? You're in church, you're worshiping God, you're receiving the word, you're saying amen when the preacher's rocking it, you don't sit there like a statue. I just added that part, I just kind of added that part. I'm having fun tonight. So, who do the 10 virgins represent? Let's take a look at this, you know. Some people think, well, those, those ones that were foolish, they're just unsaved and, you know, and these, but he, remember, he's talking to all, all this group considers them the church. Now, they represent people who believe in Jesus, who have heard the gospel, and call themselves Christians. Did you just hear what I said? These are people who believe in Jesus. They have heard the gospel, and they call themselves Christians. How many know people who believe in Jesus? They've heard the gospel, and they say they're Christians. But when you get around them, they ain't very Christian. Anybody ever? I used to get excited when I was newly saved. Everybody I met who said, well, I'm a Christian. I get all excited. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm like, Christians don't do that. Christians don't say that. You know, and like you start to get disappointed and then you start to get a little wise. And now, you know, decades later, people say I'm a Christian. I'm like, yeah, right. 
<laughs> Prove it. You say, well, that's a bad attitude. Nope, test the fruits. Lay hands on no man suddenly. Come on, use wisdom, right? Everybody, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door, and I say, I'm a Christian. They say, well, we're Christians too. That's what they say now. And they say, no, you're not. You believe X, Y, and Z, and here, let me show you, and then they run away. They never come back. <laughs> Donna, they had to get a special SUV team to get up my driveway. When they got up there and they found that I was a pastor, they never came back. <laughs> Scared them. Should have came out in my boxers with my hair all messed up. <laughs> it's another sermon, but... The fact that these people believe in Jesus, they've heard the gospel, they call themselves Christians is what we need to know here. Now, the, the fact that the word calls them virgins suggests that they live in a, a level of purity and innocence so that they are not people who are fully immersed in the world and the sinfulness of the world. So, you know, we were kind of joking, you know, you meet somebody who says he's a Christian, but, you know, they don't act like a Christian. These people, uh, you know, they have a level of purity and a level of innocence and the, the the Bible calls them virgins. So how many know there's people who don't know Jesus yet, but they're good people? They're, they're, they, they're moral, amen? Now, I'm not saying they're saved, and I'm not trying to say, you know, all good people go to heaven with all the dogs. No, I'm saying you got to be born again. But, like, not everybody who's lost is just a, a filthy, crazy, riotous heathen. How many people know good people who say they're Christians, but they just haven't been born again yet? Amen? And so the Bible describes them all as virgins. So they have a level of purity and innocence, and they're not fully immersed in the world. That's who we're talking about here. You know, many say, you know, I'm a Christian, and, you know, but only people who were born again and have a, a, a genuine soul-saving connection to Jesus Christ are Christians. We're going to see that a lot of cultural Christians, denominational Christians, and casual Christians are not Christians at all. Now, as a preacher, I hate to say that. I wish that everybody said, I'm a Christian, went to heaven. But the Bible says only those who are born again and do the will of the Father will go to heaven. So casual Christians, denominational Christians, cultural Christians, we all know people like that. Uh, the implication of this verse is that they were all virgins and they all took their lamps and they all went out to meet the bridegroom. So there's a level of commitment there. You know, if they didn't care all about Jesus or weren't watching for his coming, they wouldn't have gone through all that trouble of staying up all night, of having their lamps, of, you know, you know doing what, you know, waiting for the Lord. So there's a little disconnect here. Um, all 10 of them were honest, moral, sincere, religious people looking for Christ's return, but not all of them were prepared to meet him. That's a sobering thing to think about. Verse 2 tells us five wise were prepared and five foolish were unprepared. Now, just if you look at that, half were unprepared. Even if you're not good at math, you should be able to do that one. 5, 10, carry the one, take off my shoe, one big toe. Yeah, half, 50%. So th it's startling to think about the fact that 50% of the, the, the people who were calling themselves Christians were unprepared to meet Christ. Is that startling to you? You don't seem startled. 
Well, it's going to get worse, so hang on. Because, you know, in all actuality, less than that are prepared to meet them. It's a tough thing to swallow, but 50% is probably pretty high. It's too high of a percentage that are actually ready to meet Jesus. Listen to Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it the many will be lost the few will be saved now consider that statistic and that biblical truth in light of the fact that you're one of the ones that Jesus got a hold of and are saved and are born again and whose name is written down in the Lamb's book of life and now let's be thankful for that amen what an amazing thing What an amazing thing for God to save any of us. Part of the few, the proud. God's Marines. So verse 3 reveals exactly what made these ten virgins foolish or wise. Both took their lamps, but the wise took extra oil, and the foolish did not. So all you type A, overly organized personalities, you're the only ones that are going to be saved. No, I'm just kidding, but look at that. You know, it was about preparation. Did you hear that? It was about thinking ahead. It was about not only looking for his coming, but making sure they were prepared. Not just not a little bit to get by or maybe just enough or I'm just going to squeak in. No, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And oil in Scripture is always used uh, to show the anointing, Uh, it's always used to show the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that right now. But oil is very significant. So oil in the lamp. What was oil used for in the Old Testament? It was used to set people apart, to consecrate them to God. So if you were anointed with oil, excuse me, or covered with oil, that was part of, you know, this process to where you would be set apart by God. Listen to Leviticus 8.30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments. So the oil is used in consecration. So having oil on your life, being, uh, you know, having an abundance of oil means you are set apart for God and you're following after God. What else does oil suggest? Well, oil always suggests the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. See that? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Holy Spirit represented by oil, the oil of anointing. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Uh, And it goes on to, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed that's the Holy Spirit amen and it's on the life of a person who's consecrated to the Lord and these are the things we should be doing you know we should be preaching and healing and proclaiming and 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 and, you know setting liberty to the captives you and I have what it takes to set those who are in bondage to sin free come on Wednesday night Talking about oil here tonight. I got any? Oh, there's my oil. Maybe we'll start dumping it on some people. (laughs) Just put this here, keep you on your toes. 
So the wise had oil and they had an abundance of it. The foolish, you know, they didn't bring enough and they, they, they didn't think ahead and they figured, ah, what I got is, is enough and it'll be, you know, and they, 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 they didn't prepare themselves. And that's what these parables about, a, pr- a preparedness. Uh, the foolish... Uh, also do works you know they were counted as virgins they showed up to to be you know in the watch party they had lamps they had some oil so the foolish do works also but they're done in the flesh do you see the difference when you do good works but you do them in the flesh and you don't do them in the spirit it's just you know there's no eternal reward for that I think about people that go out and do ministry. I've heard Christians going on the mission fields and doing missions and being richly blessed and, you know, Habitat for Humanity, building houses. And then I realize there's people on those trips and on those teams that, that go out there and they're not even Christians. I saw someone who had a Habitat for Humanity shirt on. I said, oh, you, you went on a ministry. Yeah, yeah. And, and come to discover he did the good work and he built the house, but he didn't know the Lord. And you see, when you do things in the flesh, there's no eternal reward connected to it. But when you do things in the spirit, with the oil of the spirit, with the anointing of the spirit, there's eternal rewards attached to it. I notice people who are not saved to do good works, they really do them to make themselves feel good about themselves. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just, I'm just giving you an observation. A good work is a good work. Thank God for people who you know, have a heart to serve other people. But if you do it in the flesh and not in the spirit, it has no eternal reward. And here's a scripture, uh, a very sobering one, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, uh, built houses, went on mission trips, did fundraisers, go fund me pages in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So doing good works in the flesh doesn't have an eternal ward, but doing them in the spirit does. Some had oil and extra oil and an abundance of the anointing, and they had prepared themselves, and others were foolish and figured, eh, this ought to do. So the difference between the wise and the foolish, the wise had genuine faith. The wise were born again. The wise were filled to overflowing with the Spirit. The wise had a personal relationship with Jesus. The foolish, they were good at keeping rules They were willing to do works. They kept traditions and did rituals, but they didn't see the need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As we dig into this parable, you're going to see this describes a lot of people we know who are religious but are not born again, who are religious and lost. And they say, I I know Jesus. I've heard the gospel. I consider myself a Christian. But when you're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit and you're not born again, something needs to change in that life so that they're ready to meet the Lord. You and I should be praying for all the people we know like that. We've got family members. They're churchgoers. They go to denominational churches. They go to Catholic churches. They're good people. They're moral. They want to do the right things, but they're not yet born again. They're one prayer away from stepping into the kingdom of God. And you and I should be praying for them. And you shouldn't be so quiet right now. (laughs) 
Verse 5 shows an interesting turn of events. Now, I find this interesting here. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Everybody fell asleep. Epic fail. The, the, the ones filled with the spirit, with the extra oil who had prepared themselves, still fell asleep. That says something to me. You know, and the ones who were foolish, you know, falling asleep, you know, falling asleep spiritually is a dangerous state to be in. But unfortunately, you know, that's going to be the state of much of the church when Jesus comes back. He said, when I come back, will I find faith on the earth? Mm. So all of them, all 10 of them fell asleep. The entire point of the virgins gathering was for them to stay awake and watch for his coming. You guys had one job, <laughs> one thing to do, and you blew it, you knuckleheads. Did you ever, you know, realize how weak we are spiritually, how weak we are in our determination? No, not me, Pastor. Oh, now you sound like Peter. Because when Jesus took those few with him to the garden to pray with them, what did they do? They fell asleep. And what did Jesus say to them? Could you not tarry with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And even those who have the spirit were also weak and also fell asleep. So, you know, it's with great humility that we approach the Lord in anything. Because in our own strength, you know what? 10 out of 10 times, we blow it. 10 out of 10, fail to stay awake, failed to execute the point of the mission and fell asleep and the bridegroom came at a time that they were asleep. Now, God's people have also always had a problem with being an alert. alert. You know, we talked about the garden. Jesus brings a few. They fall asleep. They couldn't stay awake. The church also has a tendency to fall asleep categorically. Listen to Ephesians 5, 14 through 15. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. See, that scripture dovetails right into this parable here, talking about the wise and the foolish, and talking about staying spiritually awake. You know, if you stay spiritually asleep for so long, you're almost like spiritually dead. You see the progression there? Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Dead asleep. That's not the condition we want to be in when Jesus comes back, amen. Well, I mean, it might be better to be asleep than doing bad stuff, but, you know, I was sleeping, Lord. I had a hard day of ministry. <laughs> so God's people have always had issues with spiritual alertness, and that's human nature. And the thing is, that's why, uh, you know, this parable is here to... to you know, give us some focus and to give us some, uh, you know, uh, a wake-up call, for lack of a better word. But um, understand, not being spiritually alert can bring catastrophic events to our lives. Not being spiritually awake gives advantage to our enemy. Our enemy doesn't sleep. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't quit. He's constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, he is constantly trying to deceive us and trip us up and sidetrack us and derail us and destroy our faith. But we have got to stay awake spiritually. I'm going to close with a story. During the Revolutionary War, 
a spy appeared at the headquarters of the Hessian command of Colonel Johann Rahl, carrying an urgent message for Rahl. George Washington's Continental Army had secretly crossed the Delaware River that morning and were advancing to Trenton, New Jersey, where the Hessians were encamped. The spy was denied audience with the commander and instead was told to write his message on a piece of paper. A porter took the, no the note to the Hessian colonel because Rawl was involved in a poker game and just stuffed the note in his pocket without reading it. While the guards of the Hessian camp realized that the enemy was coming, Washington was upon them, they began to fire their muskets in a futile attempt to stop them. Rawl was still playing cards when his fort fell. Without an organized effort, he was captured, all his men were captured, and in 1776, the colonists had a late Christmas present, their first victory of the revolution. Amen. Good for us, bad for him. Least we act like that guy who's busy doing foolish things. He's playing poker. He's leading a command here. He, he, he has men whose lives depend on him. And what's he doing? He's so distracted that he ignores the warning. These parables, these messages, these pokes and prods and nudges from the Holy Spirit are warnings to us to make adjustments, to get our life in order, to clear things from our plate, to, to remove the distractions, to get in love with Jesus, to stay in love with Jesus, to keep oil in our lamps, amen? <laughs> He's coming like a thief in the night, and I don't want to be surprised. I want to be awake and watching and have oil and extra oil. Maybe we can get so much extra oil we could share it with people who aren't ready. Maybe this time, no, I'm just... Got to have your own oil. So let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I pray, Lord, that these parables would, would not make us feel condemned or, you know, discouraged or unprepared, but that they would just be a wake-up call to us to refocus on what's important in life. Father, there are so many distractions. There are so many uh, tangents. There are so many little paths and side roads and, you know, vacations that we can take spiritually. But Lord, I pray that your keeping power would be revealed in us, that you would keep us alert, that you would keep us focused on kingdom things, that we would be those who are living each day for the Lord, not for ourselves. It's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world and live for ourselves, God, but don't allow us to stay in that condition, Lord. Convict us. Whatever it takes, wake us up. Wake up the church in the West. Wake up the church throughout the world, Lord, because you're coming back for a church that's looking for you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.